Hello fellow foodies and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave and you are listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. So today on the show, I'm going to be speaking with Mary Beth Albright. She's a food expert with broad experience from being a food attorney to a finalist uh, on Food Network Star, where she competed on Iron Chef America. Her passion for good food um, really grew from her mentor, the legendary Surgeon General uh, C. Everett Koop. After 15 years of working with Dr. Koop on health and food issues and attending Georgetown Law School, graduating cum laude, Mary Beth advised on food systems and managed a White House initiative. She also worked at the D.C. law firm of Williamson Connolly and Roll Call, the oldest Capitol Hill newspaper. Um, I'm really excited to speak with Mary Beth because she's also the author of this great new book. It's called and flourish. And we'll be talking about her book and learning more about um, the connections between food and mental health. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Mary Beth. It's really great to meet you. Oh, Cassandra, I'm thrilled to be here. This is such important science and I really appreciate uh, us talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, why don't we start with just a little bit more about you and what led you to write this book? Sure. Well, about 15 years ago, I was sitting at my desk at the United States Surgeon General's office and a journal article passed um, passed across my desk about um, how omega-3 fatty acids could reduce aggression in young men. And it was really the first time that I'd ever seen a peer-reviewed study that showed that food can affect our mood and our behavior. And um, before that, it had sort of been relegated to the world of complementary and alternative medicine, which is, you know, great if you want to try it, but not really evidence-based, that kind of thing. And because I'm a very science-driven person, um, and you need to be in public health, uh, that was when when the turning point happened for me, was reading that first um, study in 2006. And the research has really exploded from there. And we have tons of science now that shows that food and mood are entwined and inextricable. Absolutely. We had a episode on a farmer's show with um, our guest was uh, Dr. Sperandiano, who studies how gut microbiota can actually recognize neurotransmitters in the gut and how that's also linked to, you know, addiction feedback loops. And there's, there's so much science that is emerging in this space. Um, so let's dive a little bit deeper. Um, maybe we can start by just talking a little bit more about food and inflammation and how all that links together with regards to mental health. Well, I'm glad you brought up the gut microbiome first because there's so much research right now going into this. And we it, there's so much information and we know so little, right? Yeah. <laughs> about the gut microbiome, which is everything about science, right? It's what we love about science, um, the, the iterative process. Uh, but, but what you said is really important when you talked about the gut microbiome, which is that it's part of a system. Mm-hmm. The body is more than just a container for parts. You know, there's a part brain, there's a part of a gut, there's, you know, part of a heart heart and a liver. It's a system. It's an ecosystem and everything is connected. And so when I looked to the science, I looked not only to neuroscience because, you know, a lot of people, when they think about mental health, they think about the the neck up, 
right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I looked at neuroscience. I looked at biology. I looked at pleasure science, which is, of course, a really important part of humans' relationship with food, with pleasure, um, and came to find that really all eating is emotional eating because of the biological and neurological impact of food when we eat anything, whether it's a carrot stick or a piece of cake. Um, One example that's really important is that anytime that we eat anything, our bodies release dopamine and that helps with bonding with other people. So we get in the book, I get into the nutrients and that kind of thing in the gut microbiome. And we will talk about that, but I also get into things like the importance of eating with other people. Because there's actually a lot of science about that, about how that can improve emotional well-being. And it's something, as I said, very specific about food because our bodies are releasing dopamine. Um, and that can help with bonding if we if we do it with other people or bonding with your television set. Um, you know, every every once in a while I enjoy a meal alone and I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a monster, but um, but eating alone as a dietary pattern is is a big health risk. So in the book, I I go to four different sections, four different pillars of eating for emotional well-being that are all science-backed. And we can get into those four if you would like to. I would love to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the first one that we, the the very first chapter is all about food pleasure. Mm -hmm. Because although we don't have an RDA for pleasure, right? There's no recommended daily allowance of this many units of pleasure that we need every day. Pleasure is a form of human nourishment, and it's an important way that we take care of our emotional well-being, whether it's eating anything, eating with other people, that kind of thing. And then we also get into, I also get into the gut microbiome, which you talked about. The gut microbiome is the collection of the trillions of microbes that exist in your digestive tract. And that's your mouth all the way down to the other end. And these microbes, as I said, there are trillions of them. They're microorganisms, they're living beings. So each one of those trillions is its own it's a, its own thing, right? Its own yeah. own living entity that lives inside of you, that eats, that digests, that reduces, that that um, gives off metabolites, that also have an impact on your emotional well-being. And the gut microbiome, gosh, there's so much about that because it's related to sleep, it's related to anxiety, social behavior, um, exercise, like all kinds of things, craving that have been associated with the gut microbiome. And then I talk of the third thing I talk about is inflammation and the and the impact that inflammation anywhere in the body can have on your emotional well-being. And then the fourth, of course, is nutrients, which is something that we're all very familiar with, you know, ABCs um, of nutrients. And not only though vitamins and minerals, but also micronutrients versus um, those are the micronutrients, but also the macronutrients. If we eat a lot of protein, if we eat a lot of fat, that kind of thing, how that can affect our emotional well-being. Awesome. Well, I would love to approach this through your through your structure of your book and maybe start with eating for pleasure. Because when I think of food for pleasure, the first thing that comes to mind is salt, sugar, fat, like all those things that help us get to the bliss point, you know, that Michael Moss has written about extensively and how foods are engineered to really hit on that bliss point. But can we eat for pleasure and still be healthy? Like what are the other aspects to eating for pleasure that um, do boost our health? Well, that was one of my most important findings with the science is that you can be somebody who loves food 
and who eats for emotional well-being. And that was really important for me because I, I do have a public health background, but I'm also a food writer. And I, I come from a, from a viewpoint of an eater and a viewpoint of deliciousness. And if it doesn't have deliciousness, I mean, you can prescribe all of the dietary interventions yes. you want. And if people don't like the food, they're not going to eat it, period, hard stop. We know this. We've yeah. seen this for decades, right? <laughs> um, I, we, I, I would love to ignore it and pretend that that's not true, but it is. So we have to live in that reality. Um, so what I get into is uh, something called neurogastronomy, which is the study of how the flavor is created in the brain. And most people think of flavor as, as something on the tongue, you know, taste. And people even think about, you know, smell and how uh, the okay. olfactory system creates flavor. And that's true too. But there are so many studies that show that all of your senses, that everything that's happening around you goes into how much you enjoy food. And one example of this is that there's a, a gentleman, um, Charles, uh, Charles Spence, who works out of Oxford University and did a study on what they call sonic seasoning, which is how what we hear affects how our brain creates flavor. Oh, so they fed people a bunch of stale potato chips. And as expected, everybody thought they were pretty gross, right? They ate a few and they were like, eh. those same people, those same potato chips, same batch, um, when they piped in noises of people crunching, of crunching chips, those same people rated those same chips as higher quality and fresher, and they ate more of them. And so this kind of idea that our that the flavor that we're that we're tasting is created in our brain, and that all of our senses go into it, whether it's touch, the mouth geometry of the way the food hits our tongue, that kind of thing. Um, sparkling water. I mean, this the whole science of sparkling water. It's a really competitive industry. I gotta tell you. <laughs> um, and the size of the bubbles and that kind of thing and how they hit the tongue, it all affects um, how much pleasure we get out of food, as does how involved we are with our food. You know, you brought up that uh, the ultra processed foods and the fat, sugar, salt bombs that companies engineer to be something that we love, right? Their companies, yeah. their job is to make money. They're doing it. And, and that's, you know, the reality of that situation. Um, all of the science has shown that ultra-processed foods, um, I, I, it's sort of like a, a brain trick. They trick our brain and they trick our guts into thinking that we need more. There's the deliciousness, certainly, that we have on our tongue of just like, oh my God, it's like we, we it, it's hijacking the system. It overwhelms us. But those ultra-processed foods are just chemically different from foods that are, you know, culinary and made in your kitchen, and they affect your you a different way, and your satiety level is lower with ultra-processed foods than it is with whole foods. And there are a lot of really interesting studies about that. Yeah. Wow, those are such great points. I mean, and it is funny, like, I, I do enjoy, like, you know, a very unhealthy McDonald's hamburger, <laughs> but I kind of feel awful after eating it. Right. And then if I'm eating with family, um, when, when we're visiting family in Italy, we have the simplest ingredients, just a very, you know, fresh tomato sauce and basil, very simple ingredients. It's amazing and delicious. And I feel good after it. So, you know, I guess the question I'm getting to is, is there a way to merge pleasure eating with health? And how do we get there? Like, how do we implement that in our own lives? Is it about eating with people? I mean, it sounds like that's like a big part of the formula. Um, how else do we get there? 
Well, eating with others is a big part of it. And other countries have caught on to this. In Japan, in Australia, in the United Kingdom, they have a, they have a program called the Big Lunch that the only point of the program is to get people to eat with other people. That's it. They wow. just want people to eat together. It's not prescribing what kind of meal or what kind of food or which meal or how long it has to be, right? It's just getting people to eat together because, and, and it's interesting, some of the researchers I spoke with in the UK um, and in Commonwealth countries said that they believe that their research is farther ahead of the research in America because of the structure of their healthcare system. And because they're able to see all the statistics coming in at once from, you know, a centralized healthcare system. And this is not a political talk. It's just sort of interesting, you know, that um, that the government can, can get these statistics and, and be a little bit more integrated about psychopharmacology, biology, these like other things, pleasure, that kind of thing. So I, I thought that was a really interesting um, observation, which is not a new one, right? Because in America, of course, we are very pharmaceutically motivated and nothing about this is says that throw away your pharmaceuticals, right? Nothing about the science says, you know, cancel your therapy appointment. I go to therapy, I take pharmaceuticals and they are wonderful and amazing. Food is a tool in the toolbox. And right now, given the state that we're in, we need all the mental health tools that we can get. And so to go back to your original question about what can we do to enhance our food pleasures, we can use this neuroscience to see that, for example, when you eat anything with heavy cutlery, you rank it as higher quality than if you eat it with light cutlery. Wow. Okay. They don't know why. They don't know the mechanism in the brain. I mean, there's probably something that about like the heaviness with quality and that kind of thing that you think if you're eating with quality utensils, you're eating quality food. There's probably something about that. But really, we don't know the mechanism. But we know that that's true. When you eat a dessert on a round plate, your brain experiences as, it as sweeter than the same dessert on a rectangular plate. And so, yeah, and we don't know why. I talked about the mouth geometry. If you eat a piece of round chocolate, it will taste sweeter than if you eat a piece of rectangular chocolate. And that's something I talk about. Um, there was a, the Cadbury company changed the shape of their chocolate in the UK. And, um, you know, dairy milk is this like beloved UK product, right? I have friends sending it to me from the UK all the time because it's so delicious. Um, and we don't have it here in America. And um, when they changed the shape of the chocolate, nothing else, just the shape from rectangles to, to, to rounds, they were bombarded with people complaining that they had changed the actual formula of the chocolate. And they didn't, they wow. changed nothing. And to me, from a public health mindset, that's really important because all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, if mouth geometry matters in how we experience chocolate, like maybe you can change the formula and the shape to have a little bit less sugar and people are still having that same pleasure, that same satisfaction, the same satiety that you don't often get with ultra processed foods. Oh, I love that. It's like using, using the psychology, the neuropsychology or food to, yeah, get more out of less of these um, salt, sugars, and fats. 
That's great. Without thinking about it, right? Yeah. You're not like, yeah. Okay, now I'm going to portion control. I'm going to have one square of chocolate per, per evening, whatever. And if you can do that, God bless you. I mean, you know, <laughs> Godspeed, do it, you know. But for a lot of us, and particularly for a lot of us who have had emotional well-being issues, sometimes that can be hard. And so that's what I tried to dive into is, is there science that can help us understand ourselves better? so that we can use these, hate to call them tricks, but they really are, these tricks on our brain um, to make ourselves feel better about what we're eating. It's amazing. All right, well, let's let's shift into the second portion of your book and talk about the microbiome because this is something I'm intensely interested in. I mean, as you know, like my, my faculty appointments in dermatology, so I'm really interested in, you know, microbiome dynamics in the skin and how yeah imbalances in the microbiome composition can be linked to different types of skin disease, like eczema, acne, um, all these other kind of inflammatory skin diseases. And yet in the gut, we're still trying to figure out, number one, which organisms are present because, you know, it, there's a lot going on in there. We know that it changes your, your dynamics of your microbiome change as you age. They're different between um, gender, they're different over different stages of your life during childhood, if during pregnancy, during you know old age, um, and they also differ based on what you eat. And this is, I think, really a, an important and exciting element of this because there is emerging science showing there is a connection between the gut and the brains called the gut-brain axis. So, what did you discover in your research for this book about this kind of relationship between food and the microbiome and and how we feel? There is absolutely a gut-brain loop. There's no question. The, the, mm -hmm. the brain communicates with the gut. It's not surprising. But the, the gut communicates back to the brain and tells the brain what's in it, you know, whether it's had enough sugar or fat or whatever. And so that gut sense is so critically important um, for, our, for our eating patterns, but also, as you said, for our emotional well-being. And that gut microbiome, you know, when I, when I divide them into four different pillars of, of eating for emotional well-being, all those pillars are interconnected, right? Yeah. Because it, so, so I, and what you said just now is, is the gut microbiome's relation to inflammation. Yes, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> right. So it's like, you can't piece them apart. We need to, because it's science and you need to study it, each thing as individually as possible. Um, so as you mentioned, the gut microbiome does have considerable uh, impact over inflammation. Um, on its own, the gut microbiome is, as I said, those trillions of bacteria and, and viruses and archaea and fungi, all these things that, that exist inside of your system. And everyone's is different. It's like a fingerprint. So as you said, it changes throughout your lifetime. It also, you know, every single one of those times is different from every single person on earth. And when you said testing it, oh, you're speaking my language because, you know, you, you find out that there's this new thing or this, I mean, it's evolutionarily old, right? It's been with us forever. These microbes co-evolved with us and there are things that our bodies can do that we couldn't do without these microbes, right? So they're not new, but the new information that we have about them and how about the gut microbiome and how important it is um, really came up after the human genome was declared MAP in the early two, 2000s. And so they started looking at, gosh, if we're all 99.9% .9 the same genomically, what accounts for all the differences in humans and in our experiences? And so that's a lot of the research turned to the gut microbiome. Um, 
it determines so many things, as I said, sleep, cravings, all those kinds of things. But it, 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 you want to test it, right? You, when, when you find out that there's something that can be tested, you want to test it. So I actually went and paid a few hundred dollars to have my gut microbiome tested and then sent it to some of the world's top researchers. And every single one of them said it was useless, that there's nothing you can do with this information. They're like, look, it, it's kind of interesting, right? But like, we don't even really know. There could be species of bacteria that we haven't even discovered inside yeah. of our because we can't cultivate them all in the lab yet. That's that's no, a big challenge. Mm -hmm. Because well, this is the thing is that the human gut is such a rich ecosystem that the things that grow in there, you can't even grow in a Petri dish, as you just said. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just don't, it, it, it's this fascinating branch. And so a lot of places since the Human Genome Project um, was, was completed, um, a lot of labs have switched to studying bacteria. And a lot of labs are looking for like, what's the one bacteria that's going to solve everything? Weight loss and cravings and depression and that kind of thing. And everybody, every researcher who is doing this says, it's not going to happen in our lifetime, in my lifetime, in my son's lifetime, that we have, that we know enough to like create a pill that makes it all better. Like to have your McDonald's hamburger and then eat the pill and it all goes away. I want that too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, like I want to be able to eat my entire birthday cake and then take a pill like it never happened. That's just not in the cards for us. And in the meantime, yeah. we do have this perfect system and it's the food system. We're just not using it right now. Oh, these are such, I mean, you're speaking my my language right now because these are all such great points. I mean, I think there's also this emphasis in Western medicine to have a single, you know, the magic bullet approach of like, oh, we're just going to load your body with this one probiotic organism that's going to solve all of your problems. And yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very complex ecosystem. Um, that's, you know, there are models to study this. There, there was a previous episode with uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Renault Jones, who talks about notobiotic models of, you know, in giving mice that are germ-free different microbes and seeing what yes. happens to their bodies. And so we can test this in a very controlled way, but it's still very much in its infancy. And speaking of infants, I also want to bring up one other thing. I don't know if you came across this in your research, but some of the work that's underway by Dr. Um, Bruce German's lab, um, looking at human breast milk. And the yes. fact that breast milk has a certain kind of sugar in it that doesn't actually isn't really used by the infant's body, but rather by a specific microbe that can be found in infant guts. So it's like a, a sugar to feed the microbiome in babies. And I'm just like, how many other examples like this are out there that we haven't discovered yet? It's 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 incredible. Yeah, it, absolutely. The breast milk studies are are super interesting. I mean, there are some that are like you know, babies could not ingest any of this without their microbiome, right? And it's yeah. interesting because there's still some debate about whether we have a gut microbiome when we're in the womb. Most people say no, that, that babies are germ-free inside and they, they start taking on the microbes when they are delivered, either vaginally, and that's one kind of microbial pro profile that you would have or cesarean section, which will be like a totally different microbial. And to be clear, I'm somebody who delivered my baby by C-section. So I'm not looking for other things to be feel guilty about like pile on <laughs> mom guilt. You know what I mean? It's just, it, it's just, the, it's the way things happen. And yeah. one of my favorite germ-free mice experiment was that um, they took, they took uh, mice um, siblings and in one of them, 
uh, induced uh, early childhood stress. And most people are like, what's that? You know, in a mouse, right? They take it away from their mother early. Um, They put it in mazes with no end, that kind of thing. And those mice predictably develop some sort of anxiety symptoms. Alongside of that, they found that those early childhood trauma mice had a different, a significantly different gut microbiome makeup. Interesting. The, yeah. Right. So, so then what they did was they took the, the gut microbiome of the, the, the mice who were showing anxiety symptoms and then put them into healthy mice. And the healthy mice started exhibiting anxiety symptoms. Everything else was a constant. So um, it, it's really interesting. And then, and then they introduced a probiotic. If you want to take it even further, this was done in Ireland, this, um, this uh, study. And then they took a probiotic. They gave the mice, some of the mice a probiotic um, and that was just found in yogurt, regular probiotic. And then some of the mice were given Lexapro. And it was shown that the probiotic, in this one instance with animals, gave as much relief from anxiety symptoms as Lexapro. Again, it's not the kind of science that tells you, throw away your antidepressants, eat walnuts, you're fine. But it's really promising. And it does go to show that food and emotions are entwined. Yeah. I mean, it it speaks to so many different factors. And again, this gets into your, your, your emphasis also in social relationships is like, all of these things are important to health, our ability to connect with others, our ability to connect with the world, um, <laughs> the foods yeah. that we eat because we're not only feeding ourselves, we're feeding a microbial community. Um, all of these are so, I mean, amazingly intertwined. I mean, we've, we have used, you know, fecal microbiome transplantation successfully to treat patients with certain types of infections. There are lots of examples of patients that develop C. difficile in their gut, which is a horrific kind of, you know, um, disease and 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 cured those patients effectively through transplanting the fecal microbiome of a healthy adult um, into them. Although that's you know that's still also a very difficult area of science, difficult to study with lots of different variables. Um, yeah, and that's I I mean that's studying dietary intervention is really really hard because short of putting a webcam on someone's head and filming everything that they that they eat you know that the in science the lick of the spoon counts you know everything counts in science and to find an a, an absolute mechanism for these things um it, it it's it, it's just not possible right now because number one because food is so complicated and number two because the human body is so complicated so that gut brain loop that we were talking about absolutely the gut microbiome is part of that but so is the vagus nerve, the vagus nerve that connects the base of um, the brain, the brain stem, all the way to the gut. And that's constantly sending signals back and forth. And stimulation of the vagus nerve is an FDA-approved uh, treatment for depression and anxiety. So we know that that has something to do with it. But to be able to point to something and say, this is it, this is the mechanism, n- no one predicts that that's going to be able to happen in our lifetime. And yeah. in the meantime, we have the food system, you know, which is ancient. <laughs> well, not the actual system, but the whole foods themselves are ancient. And, and that's what's exciting about this science is that with one foot, you have the recommendations of, you know, eat whole foods, eat plants, um, the Mediterranean diet, which of course is an ancient diet and includes not just the foods, but also eating with other people, right? There's a big part of the Mediterranean diet. Um, so with one foot, you have this like ancient wisdom. And on with the other foot, you have the most cutting edge science. Um, 
available. And so it, it's always, there's always like a, like a particular kind of satisfaction when, when cutting edge science um, confirms what, you know, what, what you sort of knew anecdotally. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So we've covered social impacts. We've covered the gut microbiome. Let's talk about inflammation because we have pro-inflammatory foods. We have anti-inflammatory foods. You know, what's, what's, what is, what's going on there with, uh, with inflammation and, and our, our sense of well-being? Yeah. So the inflammation is just the immune system at work. It's your immune system at work. So very simple example. If you cut your finger, it gets red, it gets swollen, it gets warm. That's just your immune system at work. That's inflammation. And when you cut your finger, it's an amazing thing. The problem, as you probably have heard, and as your audience has probably heard, is chronic inflammation, which is when inside of your body is is inflamed all the time for, it could be for a number of reasons because, you know, inflammation anywhere in the body can affect your emotional well-being. If you sprain your ankle or break your leg or whatever, there's going to be inflammation and that's going to affect it. Because here's what's happened. What happens is that when there's inflammation in your body, inflammatory compounds go into your bloodstream, right? And we used to think that your brain was completely protected by something called the blood-brain barrier, which is just like a barrier that kept all the toxins and junk that's circulating in our blood outside of our brain. Now we know from research in the past couple few decades that the blood-brain barrier is actually semi-permeable, that it's just a whole bunch of cells woven together, and that if you have a tiny compound, it can go through and get to your brain. And that's exactly what these inflammatory compounds do, is that they can get through that blood-brain barrier. And so understanding that, and, and we can look at how food affects inflammation, which is ultra-processed foods, which by some estimates make up 60 to 70% of our food supply, can cause chronic inflammation when they are your dietary eating pattern. Right, and with sixty to seventy percent of the food supply, it, it's hard to not have it part be your 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 eating pattern, right? So there, there, when things are ultra processed, whether it's oils, I mean, I usually take the example of oils because it's so stark that the way that you process an oil for just sort of like home use. And the way that you process an oil for industrial use are so different that it chemically changes. It can't change the oil. It's a, it's a different chemical property and your body will react to it differently very oftentimes and will react to it with inflammation. And some people think that, that those ultra processed ingredients are what causes, as we talked about before, that sort of fat, sugar, salt bombs um, that hijack the gut-brain connection that says, oh, okay, I've had enough. There's a great study out of NIH, and they actually had people live at NIH for a month so they could control what they ate, and they fed people either an ultra-high processed diet or a whole foods diet. Same kind of thing, like you'd have a breakfast sandwich, right? And one of them would be yeah. like homemade, and one of them would be like out of the freezer, right? And mm -hmm. even though the people were served the same amount of calories, the same macronutrients, the same micronutrients, everything, people ate more calories when they were offered ultra high processed foods. And that's just, we wow. don't know why, but when you're offered the same amount of calories, you eat more calories when it's ultra processed. That's, that's incredible. It was, it's a great study. I mean, it's really wow. hard to do those studies without government funding because you, you got to house people for a month. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. You've got to find people who are willing to be housed for a month and just fed and watched. And so it's, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard science. That's great. Well, then getting into the last part of your book, thinking about nutrients, what did you learn about specific nutrients that are essential to this process? Well, the most studied micronutrient is our omega-3 fatty acids, particularly DHA and EPA. And if you look at some of the studies with DHA and EPA, you'll find that um, neurons that have had enough DHA and EPA, you can actually see them connecting. I mean, it's very slowed down, right? You can see them connecting through a two-photon microscope more quickly than neurons that have not had sufficient DHA and EPA. Um, you get that, the only way you get it is from fatty fish um, because, it, or, or, you know, algae, right? Um, okay. but, but the fish, the, the fish eat the, I mean, fish don't have them in their, in their bodies when they're born. It's like the fish eat the algae and, the, and we eat the fish and we get the benefit of what is in the fish, of the DHA and the EPA. So um, I get a lot into that. But then the, also the interesting thing is about macronutrients, protein, fat, fiber, carbohydrates, that kind of thing, is that um, there, there's a, a lot of evidence that, if, that people who will eat more protein are less sensitive to social cues are less sensitive to, um, to I'll, I'll tell you what the study was, is that okay. people, yeah. were, people were given, um, were brought into the same lab two times. The first time they were given all carbohydrate breakfast and the second time they were given all protein breakfast. And then they were given a task to do three hours later. And um, the task was that someone offered them, gave them an unfair offer. It's like, okay, well, I'll give you, we, I have $10 to split. I'm going to give you 25 cents and I'm going to take $9.75. People who had had carbohydrates were more likely to reject that offer than people who had had protein. And we don't know why, right? There, it, what's really interesting is that um, the, the amount of tyrosine uh, which is in their blood, um, which is a precursor to dopamine, was higher when they were um, eating protein. And so there's some thought that there's like something evolutionarily that goes back to, you know, times when we ate a lot of protein and what, and so we, we needed to share things more. So there are a lot of anthropological studies about that. But in the meantime, it is really fascinating to look at how our social behavior and our perception of outside events um, can vary depending on what food we ate. I mean, this opens up so many questions for me. There, well, as you know, there's so many fad diets that come mm -hmm. and go. There was the Atkins and we have the keto diet. We have, I mean, there's like a diet for every, every guru that pops up on the internet, <laughs> you know? And so uh, what is that actually doing to our brains though? When you radically, radically shift your diet, and I'm not talking about just getting off of processed foods, or maybe I am like, switching from processed foods to more of a whole foods diet of, you know, plant heavy or plant-based diet versus going, you know, primarily meat, like in some of these, you know, diets. What Do we know how that's affecting our brains? Has this even been something that's been discussed among nutritionists? I mean, I'm just thinking like people, especially when it comes to weight loss and or physical performance, I mean, people will go to desperate levels to to um, yes. engage in these major dietary shifts. And I don't think we're giving enough thought to what this is actually doing to our mood, to our ability to think, to our ability to reason. Should we be concerned? 
There, I have not seen studies of people who were having like a healthy diet switch to something that was extreme, not at the recommendation of their doctor, just because, you know, they read about and what that does to brains. And when you think about it, as as difficult as it the whole thing is, as dietary studies are, it would be very difficult to conduct a study like that. And then also like what do you look at? You know, do you do mm-hmm. MRIs? Do you do like what what do you look at with their emotional well-being? I know there have been sp- studies about specific um conditions like epilepsy and that kind of thing with different um, extreme diets. Uh, I didn't look into those because I was dealing with a little bit more of general emotional well-being. Because although, you know, all of these things are important and all of the science is important to take a look at, um, I find that the people are often looking at emotional well-being as uh, bifurcated. Like you're either well or you're not well. You're either good or you're bad. Um, And, and what I wanted to do bring out was bring a book that spoke to everybody, um, mm-hmm. not just specific conditions, but speaks to everyone and our experience with, you know, food and emotional well-being. You brought up the 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 example of people doing extreme diets to lose weight, and to me, one of the most freeing and exciting things about this research is that um, it, about the research between food and emotional well-being is that the changes in mental health happen independent of weight. You do not have to lose weight for any of these things to happen. And to me, that was really fresh, refreshing because I, I've grown up in diet culture. Most of us have. Um, if, yep. we're, if we're living in America, a lot of us, most of us have grown up in some sort of diet culture. And we're just now starting to push back on that, right? Um, and it's hard because you, you, it, it's so ingrained in mm-hmm. us, um, that lower body weight is associated with goodness all around, yeah. you know, and that that's the thing to, to focus on if you're focusing on food. And so for me, it was a very freeing, um, different why, right? Because yeah. something different, it's like, well, why am I doing this? And if it's not weight loss, then why is it? And emotional well-being to me was a really powerful why. That's amazing. Well, I mean, I've, I've put a lot of time looking into ways to help with my own emotional well-being, but primarily through management of chronic pain and inflammation. Like like many Americans, I have chronic pain. Mine's due to early osteoarthritis in one of my hips. Um, and so, but I've also looked a lot into these dietary switches and then, you know, enhancing more turmeric and black pepper and these types of kind of anti-inflammatory foods in my diet and also increasing, you know, regular use of vitamins. And I'm just wondering, because I know you also write about vitamins in the book. Do yeah. you have any advice based on the research, like science-backed advice on the types of supplements, you know, that people might want to consider? using um, in their day-to-day routine? Are, are there certain vitamins associated with better better um, kind of mental well-being? Yeah. And I focus, as you mentioned, I focus on the food, right? I start yeah. from a place of food always. Um, Whole foods. But I'll give you mm-hmm. two, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and plants, not, not just plant-based, but actual yeah. plants. Plants, um, yes. Because there are some plant-based foods that are ultra-high processed, absolutely. And oh, yeah. which is not saying 
you know, which is not saying never eat them, but it is saying that you need to understand the differences between the between you know a plant and a processed plant food. That's yeah, all. eating a bowl of peas versus eating pea protein transformed into chicken nugget kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, like, and you know, no shade. Some people love that, and yeah. that's you know that, that. But that that should be considered an ultra processed food. Yes. Um, because it is. And within ultra processing, there, there are, of course, levels too. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, not, not like a potato chip, but also not like a pea, right? Yeah. Um, and now I can't remember your question. I did have something. The question right. was about vitamins. Uh, oh, vitamins. Certain yeah. vitamins, yeah, that, that came out in your research. So um, there are four micronutrients that I personally pay attention to because of the research. The first, as we talked about, it's, uh, well, I group them together, DHA and EPA, because mm-hmm. um, I live a lot of the time out on the east end of Long Island where there's amazing fish all the time. Great fish, right? When I'm in a place where there's not as reliable fresh fish and there's not like, oh, a can of salmon around or something like that, a can of tuna, um, I do take an omega-3 DHA mm-hmm. EPA supplement because I've seen that research that it's like, it, it, it's so nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I take in vitamin D in, in uh, winter, I take a vitamin D supplement, uh, cause I'm just not outside that much when I'm outside a lot. I usually don't take it, but I do. And then there are two other really interesting micronutrients. One is zinc for depression. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of research showing that people who, uh, that a, a, um, a low zinc level is associated with greater depressive symptoms. And so I'll pay attention to zinc a lot too. And then magnesium, because there are a lot of studies that show that um, magnesium is, when people are really stressed, there's more magnesium in their urine. So their body is using it and secreting it, right? And so the idea of replenishing that is, is really important. So those are sort of the four that I focus on the most. That's great. And I think, you know, for at least for the magnesium and zinc, those are found in a lot of your, you know, complete supplements that people can get like a daily vitamin. You don't have to necessarily go and buy special. um, They're also found in whole foods. In whole foods. And beans and legumes. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got two last questions for you Um, because this is something I really want to highlight in the book is, you know, how do we, how do you go about developing better plans? Um, I believe you have kind of a 30 day kickoff plan. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's four weeks, and it's it's divided into one of each of the pillars of eating for emotional well being. There's one week that's devoted entirely to increasing your food pleasure. We can do that, right? To, I can to, do that. Food pleasure, well, right? Sound. I mean, it's okay. like you're not changing anything you're eating. Um, so yeah, it's like it's like you know, using the heavy cutlery, changing up plates, listening to music, that kind of thing, and mm-hmm. and it, eating with other people. Um, and then there's one week that is devoted to the gut microbiome. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that I recommend, which has been something people have asked me a lot about, is that the American Gut Project found that people who eat 30 different plants a week have better health outcomes than people who eat 10 different plants a week. And a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, I, I, 10 plants, 30 plants, what are you even talking about? When you think about 10 plants, I mean, think about like wheat, corn, soy which is all over the, the processed food um, supply. Yeah. Lettuce, tomato, banana, 
you know, like, like basic. Okay. So count your, yeah. Most of us are getting 10 plants a week in some way, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Getting up to 30, that, that diversity, because the body is an ecosystem and diversity is a strength of all ecosystems, we need that diversity in our diet. So one of the things that I suggest for the gut microbiome week is to go to a salad bar. And just get a little spoonful of everything, right? And then through that, because like that's an easy way to do it. Um, so that was that's a gut microbiome week. There's a week that focuses on nutrients, as we discussed, like um, like omega three fatty acids, and then there's the final week um, that is devoted to inflammation. And mm-hmm. so it's these like simple ways that you can start to create that emotionally supportive eating pattern because everything says it's not about like be perfect for 30 days and then it's going to be fine. I mean, I don't know about you, but the pursuit of perfection is terrible for my well-being, personally, yeah. <laughs> my emotional well-being. I don't want to lose my emotional well-being while I'm, you know, trying to eat to support it. Um so it's it's not that's not the message. The message is about developing a healthy eating pattern for life. And I know that's like, oh, you know, I, I, I wish I had something else to say, but um, but the really great news is that that kind of a, a pattern can be a tool in your emotional health toolbox. And, and the science is not really well known. So I'm really grateful that we're talking about it now. That's amazing. Okay. So foodie uh, pharmacology listeners, our homework for the week is to definitely eat a variety of vegetables and do it with friends. I think that's something we can all um, try together. I love that. And the last question, this is one I like to ask all of my guests is what is, you know, a recipe, a fun recipe that you like to make at home? Can you share with us one of your favorite recipes that we might be able to try a nice kind of healthy food or just a trip, yeah. like you said, to the salad bar and throw everything that looks interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. on your no, plate? <laughs> well, I do have some recipes in the book. Um, okay. And one of my favorites is blueberry crisp. Because you can use it with, I mean, it's it's any fruit crisp, really. I mean, if you cut okay. up fruit into little bits and put it in, it's going to work. You know, it could be an right. apple crisp. It could be a strawberry crisp. But I love it because I, I leave a bag of frozen berries in my freezer at all times. And okay. it's so easy to just pour some berries into a dish and then um, you make a topping with some honey and some oil and whole wheat flour and oats and that kind of thing. It's basically a big oatmeal cookie and you put yeah. it on top and you bake it. And it's so easy. And you don't nice. even need anything. Like you can do it with your hands. I used to do it when my kid was little. He used to do it because you can just do it with your fingers. Yeah. So you don't need a knife. You don't need a. Um, and what happens is you get this like amazing smell in your house, which of course is a big part of emotional well being, the olfactory mm-hmm. system, mm-hmm. but also you're getting this like warm oatmeal cookie on top of this like juicy, thick fruit. And sometimes I'll just put that on top of yogurt, like plain yogurt. And like, that's, that's breakfast. And it gives you something that it's like, it it still has that sugary syrupy feeling, but it's not, there's no refined sugar in it. So I really love that. And that's in the book. That's amazing. I'm going to have to try that one because, you know, I, I, I agree, like when it comes to fruit, you know, sometimes it's hard to keep fresh fruit, you know, without having it go bad in the house if you don't eat it right yeah. away. But the great thing about frozen fruit is you're still getting all of those amazing nutrients, um, and especially in your dark berries, a lot of those, um, you know, paranthocyanins and, and antioxidant molecules are all trapped into the frozen fruits. So that's a 
That's a great, a great way to do it. Well, thank you so much, Mary Beth. You've been an amazing guest. I've learned so much. I'm really excited to share this great book that you've written with others. So again, everybody, it's called Eat and Flourish. And where can they go to find more about your book, about about your work? Where where can we send um, folks to? Yeah, well, my website is marybethalbright.com. I am on Instagram at mary.beth. And on Twitter at Mary Beth. And I love, love, love to hear from people about their experiences with the food mood connection because I feel like everyone has one. And um, it's a it's a fun community to, to be a part of. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Cassandra. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded here for you on Restream today. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth for bringing you this great show every week. And I want to let you know if you're interested in getting any podcast merch, you can head over to mysterycontrol.com and just pull up Foodie Pharmacology, another great way to support this show, which again is brought to you with no commercials, thanks to support of, of amazing uh, amazing listeners like yourself, you can go over to buymeacoffee.com slash foodiepharma and buy me a cup of coffee, which I will greatly, greatly appreciate. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.